You're listening to The 66, a podcast in which we look at the Bible one book at a time. In every episode, we're going to read, think, and apply the biblical text. I've got Andrew Kingsley with me, and I'm Drew Kaiser. Today, we're looking at the book of Ezra, and uh, we're introducing not only the book of Ezra, but we're introducing the podcast. This is our very first episode, and uh, we've been thinking about this a long time, and uh, really excited about it starting on this venture of trying to cover the whole Bible. Now, we know how crazy that sounds, right? I mean, yeah. it, how many years is this going to take? Lots of them. Yeah, I, I don't know if we'll ever get done with it, but we're going to start. And we're going to start in the book of Ezra. And so uh, what's really neat about Ezra, and the way we're going to do this is Ezra ties in neatly, as most of you Bible scholars know, with Nehemiah and Esther. And the theme of this is restoration because it concerns a historical time of the Jews called the Restoration Period. The Jews have been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, and through God's providence, they are allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and their city and their nation. And so the story of all of that is told in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and uh, the theme of that is restoration. Now, the way we're going to break this down is we're going to look at restoration through the eyes of four main characters, main players in this history. And Ezra has two of them, Zerubbabel and Ezra, of course. So I'm going to give you the overall outline for Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and uh, at the top of each book, we'll return to this outline to remind everybody uh, what what they're listening to. And, and maybe you pick up Esther in, before you listen to Ezra, and so you'll need this. But here's how it works out. First of all, we're going to see the restoration of worship through a character named Zerubbabel. And this is covered in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. We'll get the first of that today. Secondly, we're going to look at the restoration of the law in Ezra chapters 7 through 10, and this is through the character Ezra himself, who was a scribe. Uh, He had given himself to the law and teaching the law. Third, the restoration of the city. This is carried out by Nehemiah, and this is covered, of course, in the book of Nehemiah. And finally, the restoration of honor, and this is carried out by Queen Esther, who was just a young Jewish girl who, through God's providence, found herself as queen of Persia at a very important time in her nation's history. So to, to rehearse that again, you've got the restoration of worship, the restoration of the law, the restoration of the city, and the restoration of honor. And this is how God's people went from being captives, slaves in Babylon, to being a nation again, a nation with a very important uh, role, a very important uh, service to humanity, which was to bring the Messiah in, the Savior of the world. Uh, there are all kinds of great applications. Every episode, we're going to get you to read, think, and apply the text. And uh, this is a way that we found is a lot of fun to move through the text, but also really instructive and inspiring. And so that's what we're going to do today and every time we come together for the podcast. Uh, so, um, Andrew, we're going to get into Ezra today, and I'm excited. We've been practicing with the book of Isaiah, 
So I'm really excited to uh, start a new book here with Ezra, historical book of the Old Testament, and uh, talk about this period of the Jewish history that a lot of people ignore. People are, you know, really excited about Exodus, and you know, there's a lot of studies in Joshua these days, but mm-hmm. you know, not many sermons and Bible classes are taught on Ezra. So uh, we're excited to get into some material that's not studied so much. And Ezra breaks down in a really interesting way. Like I said, the first part of it, the first six chapters concern a restoration of the worship of God's people. That's what comes first. And that's in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. Now today, we're going to talk about the return to worship in chapters 1 and 2. And to set that up, I actually want to take us to Psalm 137. Uh, Why do they need to be in Jerusalem in order to worship? Well, you know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, particularly the Law of Moses in Genesis through Deuteronomy, you'll know that the temple was central to the worship of the Jews. And uh, they could not worship the way that it was instructed in the Old Law without the temple and the altar for the burnt sacrifices and and all the other instruments that they needed for this uh, Old Testament worship. And Psalm 137 is a heartbreaking psalm that is set in captivity in Babylon, which is the time period right before the book of Ezra. This sets it up. And in this psalm, they are uh, in captivity, and you can see them weeping. It starts out, By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. Lyres were the instruments that they used in their worship. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then they asked this question, and this is key to understanding today's episode. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? In other words, how can we worship the way God told us to worship when we're away from the city of Jerusalem and held as captives in the province of Babylon? How are we going to do that? Um, They can't. So there has to be a return before there can actually be a restoration of worship. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about you know, how the temple was rebuilt and all the things that go into that. But before you can get to that, the, there has to be a, a mass migration of God's people from Babylon down to the city of Jerusalem. So that's what we're going to look at today. Now, that brings us to the book of Ezra. The first thing that you see in Ezra chapter 1 is a background of this return, and that's in verse 1. And uh, we'll just read through it, and as we come to each part, we'll, we'll get a little information about it. First of all, we read this name Cyrus. It begins, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, Cyrus, as it says, was king of Persia. He had just returned from a defeat of Babylon in 539 B.C. So the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's the first year that he was inaugurated as king of this whole Persian province that included Mm -hmm. Babylonia, the year that most scholars agree on that is 538 B.C. So the Jews have been in captivity now for almost 70 years 
beginning in about 606-605 BC to 538 BC. That's the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And uh, Ezra says this is that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So that's an interesting statement. You read this about this return, and he says this return is in fulfillment of the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Now he's referring back to Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 12 and 13, and again in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, which in which Jeremiah, who lived through the destruction of Jerusalem and some of the captivity, Jeremiah says this captivity is only going to last for 70 years. That's the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Now, uh, we, you and I have been studying the book of Isaiah, and I would add to what Ezra says, this also happened in accordance with the word of Isaiah. And uh, this is in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, where Cyrus is actually mentioned. And to really get how amazing that is, you have to understand that Isaiah was written, when did we say, uh, 8th century, so in about 740 B.C. And we just dated this mm. At uh, throw so many dates out, I start to get confused. Five thirty-eight. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's like uh, 150 years difference between the Book of Isaiah and the Book of Ezra, and the events mm-hmm. in the Book of Ezra, and so you know, over a hundred years before Cyrus, Isaiah wrote Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, and mm-hmm. in chapter 44, verse 28, Isaiah says, "Who says of Cyrus?" He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying, Of Jerusalem she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45 continues, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, and open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. On down in verse um, 4, the Lord says, to Cyrus, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. To equi- I equip you, though you do not know me. So Cyrus is a character that is mentioned in Old Testament prophecy, namely in the book of Isaiah. And Ezra mentions Jeremiah because Jeremiah said this captivity is only going to last for 70 years. Uh, Now, we're still talking about the background of this return, and we read on. It says that he made, or or that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, that's an interesting thing, too. The return was stirred by the Lord in the spirit of Cyrus. What does that mean? Did a miracle occur? Um, did some kind of uh, you know divine nudging take place? Did he have a dream, a vision? You know, there are all kinds of possibilities mm-hmm. on the table there. Uh, I I found the most interesting one to be what was recorded in the history of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. Was he a contemporary with Jesus? I mean, was he around first century, was, a little before Jesus? I think he was. He was a little bit after. He could have been alive during the time of Jesus, but I know he wrote about the destruction of Jerusalem after. Oh, okay. Jesus. So yeah, so he would have had to. Yeah. 
Uh, he maybe be a little younger than Jesus. Yeah, he he might have been alive during his lifetime, but um, yeah. Well, I know he does mention Christ um, mm-hmm. briefly, and he, mm-hmm. Josephus was not a Christian. He was a Jewish historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was not a believer in Christ. He was, you know, strictly writing history. Listen to what he says about this event, and this may be what happened when uh, we read that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. This was known to Cyrus by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies. For this prophet said that God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision. And then he quotes um, you know, what we read. My will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, send back my people to their own land to build my temple. Josephus says, This was foretold by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished. Accordingly, when Cyrus read this and admired the divine power, an earnest desire and ambition seized upon him. Now, I would think that's kind of like a stirring of the Spirit. Uh, To fulfill what was so written. So he called for the most eminent Jews that were in Babylon and said to them that he gave them leave to go back to their own country and rebuild their city Jerusalem and the temple of God. That's really fascinating to me that Josephus, I think he's repeating a Jewish tradition. So this goes way back, and and I think this is as good a guess as any as to what is meant here when Ezra says that the Lord stirred up his spirit. I think that more than likely he came across the prophecy or the scroll of Isaiah and was impressed to find his own name in there. Hey, somebody wrote about me conquering the world 140 years ago, or more than that, and, you know, says that I will restore the city of Jerusalem, well, okay, let's do it. And he sent the Jews back. So uh, that's the background of the return. You've got, you know, this king, he's new king of the world, uh, this great empire named Persia. In his first year, the year 538 B.C., that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah and Isaiah may be fulfilled, he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and put it in writing. What you have after that are the terms of the return as stated by Cyrus. And those are listed in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And I'll just read that. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then you see the people, you know, getting stirred up themselves. God had stirred them to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord. Verse 5 says, And they all get everything together, and Cyrus is contributing things. He's bringing out all the precious vessels, the sacred items that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen out of the temple back in 586 B.C., and he gives them to him. He gives them the provisions they need, and they start making the long trek from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, a name is mentioned as the Prince of Judah in verse 8. And this is Sheshbazar. This comes up again in verse 11. 
And uh, I believe this to be one and the same with Zerubbabel, who's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 2. We may be looking at a case here where we have a Babylonian name and a Jewish name. Maybe Zeb- uh, Zerubbabel. Mm-hmm. I almost said Zebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Maybe Zerubbabel uh, is names. <clears throat> the successor of Shesh Bazar. Maybe it's the same person. It doesn't matter. The main character is going to be Zerubbabel. He is the one who's listed as the governor or the leader in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. He is the leader at this stage. You read Ezra and you think, okay, yeah. Ezra's in charge. But Ezra's not even alive yet. He is not mm-hmm. in the picture and you have to look at this. The first six chapters come way before chapter 7 and following in the book of Ezra. So Zerubbabel is in charge. And mm-hmm. we so that's part two of the outline, the terms of the return. The last part is chapter 2, which is the people of the return. And you have a long, what a lot of people may think to be a very boring list mm-hmm. of people. But it can be fascinating if you take the time to look into it. What we're going to do is just kind of identify the groups of people here because we don't have a lot of time to to look at who they are. Mm -hmm. In verse 2, first of all, you have the leaders listed. Two of the names you recognize, and the rest of them are just names that have been lost upon us. Uh, Zerubbabel, whom we've already discussed, and Uh Jeshua, who was the high priest at this time. Mm-hmm. I know Nehemiah and Mordecai are listed, and you want to say, oh, there there are two other guys we know, but this mm-hmm. is not the Nehemiah and Mordecai that yeah. we're familiar with. Um, so what we have next here are just people in general. And there's so many people, almost mm-hmm. 50,000 going, there's no way that Ezra's going to list all of the people. But he does something clever here, beginning in verse 3. He lists them by families, and then somewhere down in this list... I need to get my other Bible out here where I've written notes down. Uh, With verse 20, he starts listing them by villages. So the families, if you count them up, you know, he lists about 15,604 people in terms of families and uh, 8,500 people in terms of villages. You got about 21 villages listed there. But that's verses 3 through 35. You've got the people. So we had the leaders and then the people. And then uh, next you have the consecrated servants, beginning in verse 36. And I'm going to give these categories really quickly. Under the category of the consecrated servants, you've got the priests, the Levites, the singers. And look look who we got there under the singers in verse 41. Oh, yeah. I saw from the Psalms. Yeah. Mm. That blew me away. You know, is this when... I always say Asaph, but you probably yeah. said it correctly. Asaph. Oh, I don't know. Is this when the sons of Asaph came into the picture and, you know, they authored a number of the Psalms that you read about. They were yeah. in the return. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not that dry, you know, yeah. to, to people who take the time to look into these people. That is cool. Um, you've also got under these consecrated servants the gatekeepers, and I assume they are the people who guard the gates. Mm-hmm. of the temple once it gets built. Keep in mind, by the way, the temple is rubble right now. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But they're you know, sending gatekeepers in. Maybe they guard the temple treasury. Um, this is kind of like yeah. temple guard you read about in the New Testament, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then verse 43, you've got the temple servants. Uh, verse 55, Solomon's servants. We don't know what that's all about, but altogether... There are um, several consecrated servants that are sent over. 
And then final, finally in the list, you've got in verse 59 and following some unconfirmed people, people who didn't have their family trees. Yeah. Uh, you know, they lost their genealogical tables when they were ripped from their homelands. And you'd expect this kind of thing to happen. And because they couldn't prove where they came from, they're put down at the bottom of the list. All total, Ezra tells us in verse 64, there were 42,360 people mm-hmm. that returned. Others would come later with Nehemiah. Um, others will come uh, with Ezra later. And uh, so this isn't the only number. Don't look at that and say there will only be 50,000 people in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. They will multiply and it will grow over the next several centuries. But that is the beginning of the restoration. The restoration of worship, and we see the return for worship under that in Ezra chapters 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. What did I miss? I don't think you missed anything. All right. I think we've got Cyrus, we've got Jeremiah, we've got, they re- they have returned, the fulfillment of this prophecy. You know, a lot of cool stuff we talked about with our podcast on Isaiah is now coming to fruition. Yeah. Well, that's our reading, and uh, we're going to take a little break here, and when we come back, we're going to think more deeply about these things, so stay with us. time listeners, every time we do one of these, we start out with a reading, and then we come back to think a little more deeply about what we've read through. And for Andrew and me, this is the most interesting part of it. Um, Other people may not feel that way, but we get to get into things that, you know, are kind of interesting to us, and Mm -hmm. sometimes we get into archaeology and history, or, you know, the text, some of the vocabulary words, either in the Hebrew or the Greek. Uh, but sometimes it's just uh, trying to work through some apparent contradictions. And I think that's kind of where we want to start today. Uh, because there's some funny stuff going on in this edict of Cyrus in mm-hmm. Ezra chapter 1. In uh, chapter 1, verse 2, the edict begins like this. Thus says Cyrus king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he goes on to say, he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And we, in the first section, we talked about how this flowed out of maybe his seeing his name in the scroll of Isaiah and, you know, saying, hey, that's me. I'm going to fulfill that. That's, you know, pretty cool. I'm I'm going to go ahead and do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... Over there in Isaiah 44, if he was reading carefully, he would have seen this. And I know we read it before, but I'm going to draw your attention to verse 5 again. Where the Lord says, well actually it's in verse 4 of Isaiah 45. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. Mm -hmm. He says, you do not know me. And that works well with the archaeology. Because in the Cyrus Cylinder, which is the archaeological finding that corroborates what we're reading today, Mm -hmm. dates back to the same time period and has this edict that we're reading. Mm -hmm. 
Cyrus says that I did this by the power of the Babylonian god Marduk. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mention Yahweh. Doesn't mention the Lord. The God. Of, he doesn't even say the God of Judah or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says Marduk, a false god of Babylonia. Mm-hmm. So that works with Isaiah 45 because God says you're going to do this even though you don't know me. Mm-hmm. So we're fine until we get to Ezra and Cyrus says the Lord mm-hmm. which is translated from Yahweh yeah. the God of heaven. The name for God. He, yeah. drop, he drops the name of the Lord in Ezra but I, so here's the, here's the problem. I don't know if I've set it up to our listeners good enough, but the problem is that in the Cyrus cylinder, it seems that Cyrus doesn't know the Lord. Mm-hmm. In the Isaiah prophecy, the Lord says, "You're going to do this without knowing me." But then He uses the name of the Lord Yahweh in Ezra chapter one verse two. Yeah. So is this a contradiction? That's that's what we're dealing with here. Now, how do we work that one out? Well, I think this one, I mean, at first glance, it might seem tough, but it's pretty easy, really. If you go to Isaiah 45, where we already are, and talking about verse 4, call you by name, I name you, though you don't know me. This idea of knowing somebody, as we talked about earlier, this idea of knowing somebody is different from just me recognizing your name. Um, and, you know, this kind of lingers on in our culture today, um, you know, when I've the first time I ever met you, you know, I someone says, "Do you know Drew Kaiser?" And what I'm going to say is, "Well, I've met him, but I don't know him." Mm-hmm. Or you know, I know his name, but I don't know him. I know of him, yeah, but I don't know him. Yeah, yeah. and I, I really think that's the case with uh, Cyrus and God here. Yeah. You know, he uses God's name. You know, his name that was considered. You know, too holy to even pronounce because it's Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, uh, with no vowels. He uses that name. So that is, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's some pretty heavy stuff there. But just because he uses the name doesn't mean he necessarily knows him. If you keep reading in Isaiah 45, um, he said, or in verse 4, you don't know me. And then immediately after that in verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God, I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now, what's interesting is that Cyrus is probably a polytheist, you know, as we discussed during the break. He's probably a polytheist. We know he believes in the the Babylonian God. A lot of people, who's Marduk, a lot of people have suggested that he was also a believer in this Persian god Ahura Mazda, so he Cyrus probably had no problem believing in another god. You know, he thinks there's Marduk. He thinks there's all these different gods. One that controls the seasons. One that's the god of chaos. One that's the god of order. One that's the god of uh, all the rain. All these different things. What's the problem with believing in one more god? Who he's found some writing from 150 years ago that says. Cyrus, you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But it's the essence, the essence of knowing the true God mm-hmm. is denying all the other gods, mm-hmm. which is embedded deep into the Hebrew Scriptures. Mm-hmm. How did the book of Chronicles end? How did the book of Second Kings end? 
with the people being carried away into this captivity from which they're released in Ezra for idolatry. Mm-hmm. For the very reason they didn't know God in the way he wanted them to know him, which is to mm-hmm. know only him and to glorify only him. Yeah. They were trying to know everybody. Yeah, because if and you And knowing know, everybody is not knowing him. That's that's exactly right. Knowing yeah. everybody is not knowing him. So I think that explains it. And and like you said, it I, I didn't notice that, but you, you brought it up well uh in the very statement, I'm the Lord, there is no other besides there is you know, when he says, You do not know me He's also kind of explaining that in that, and by know me, I mean know me as the only God. Yeah, he's saying like, you don't know me. I'm the one true God. I made, you look down in verse 7, I form light and darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I'm God. I'm the Lord who does all these things. He knows the version of it. He he had heard of him. He didn't know him. So I I think that explains it and also makes it more interesting, you know, when we read back over it. Uh, you brought us over to Isaiah. We can't seem to get out of Isaiah. We still yeah. don't have it out of our system. So we're going to keep talking about Isaiah yeah. under the auspices of Ezra. But when we were over here, I just glanced down to a little note I'd made a long time ago from Isaiah 45, verse 13. And I just thought, wow, that's exactly what Ezra said. Uh, the Lord says of Cyrus, he says, I have stirred him up in righteousness. Oh, that's cool. I have stirred him up. And then over in Ezra 1, uh, where was it? It was in verse 1. The mm-hmm. Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Now, did was Ezra thinking about Isaiah 45? Hmm. I, Looks like I don't know, it. though, because he didn't name Isaiah. He named Jeremiah. Jeremiah yeah. he, <laughs> he tells us, what's interesting to me is he tells us he's thinking about Jeremiah. But it really sounds like he's talking about Isaiah. Maybe that's because Drew and Andrew haven't done a podcast on Jeremiah, Jeremiah. yet. Yeah. We're uh, thinking about Isaiah, not Jeremiah. But man, it really it really stood out to me just now when we were looking over that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, let's look at a, another issue before we move on to our practical application. I thought it was interesting and informative in verse 5. When Ezra tells us that there rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of, and he names three tribes, Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. So those are three tribes there, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. Now everybody knows, you know, there are 12 tribes of Israel. And that sounds easy until you start looking at the list of them. Mm-hmm. You'll see a list, you know, in Exodus, and it'll be, you know, the straight form from the sons of Jacob. You know, the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, etc. And then sometimes you'll you'll look at your map in the back of your, you know, Bible and you'll see the twelve tribes of Israel and you won't see Joseph listed. And you'll see these two guys that you didn't hear you've never heard of before, Ephraim and Manasseh, who those were the sons of Joseph. Mm-hmm. So then you've got that. And then um you know, over in uh, some later historical books, there will just be, um, you know, one tribe left, Judah. And you think, well, where did the others go? And then here we have, like, uh, three tribes listed. You think, okay, where are the other nine? Mm-hmm. But then you hear about the ten lost tribes of Israel. So is it nine or ten? And I like the story in First um, Kings 11 
and I forget his name, I think it's Abijah, this prophet Abijah meets Jeroboam on the road. Mm-hmm. And, he, yeah. and he takes his robe and he rips it Cuts into it 12 pieces. 12 pieces. Yeah. And he hands Jeroboam 10 pieces, which means there's two left. But then later on there's talk of Judah only. So people get really confused. Oh, and then I'll add to that over in the book of Revelation in chapter 7, the tribes of, the tribes of Israel are listed. And it's another list. I'm trying to remember what was... There was something about that that was kind of funny. starts with Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi. Yeah, so Ephraim's not listed. There are 12. Mm-hmm. you got Levi, Iskar, Zebulun, and Joseph is listed, and Benjamin. So there's... I know Ephraim's left out of there, and there's something else left out in order to include Joseph and to include Levi. Um, mm-hmm. So somebody who's really smart, smarter than me, can tell me, Dan, that's who's left out of there. Mm-hmm. So in this list, there's no Dan, and there's no Ephraim. So you could go crazy over this thing. Yeah. What you've got to understand is that list was very fluid, depending on the purposes for it. When you're talking about land, it's very simple. There's no Joseph, no Levi. Levi didn't have a land inheritance. His inheritance was the Lord's. His inheritance was the tabernacle service and all the things that went around with that. Uh, and you, So in land inheritance, you had Ephraim and Manasseh instead of Joseph and Levi. Mm-hmm. But then when you're talking about some other things, like in the book of Revelation, Joseph is emphasized for obvious reasons. Well, you got to make room for Joseph to so take Ephraim out. And then mm-hmm. Dan was known for idol worship, so he's left out for symbolic reasons. Yeah. Levi's put in for symbolic reasons. So you're not trying to represent the land inheritance there in the book of Revelation. Yeah. Um, why sometimes, you know, Judah mentioned only and Benjamin left out? Because Benjamin was so small, mm-hmm. it's just not, almost not worth mentioning. Basically absorbed into Judah. Yeah. But technically, Ezra has it right. If you want to just get real technical, at this period in the history of the Jews, who was left? Levi was left. Judah was left. And Benjamin. Um, but, you know, Benjamin and Judah by this point, pretty much the Almost same synonymous. thing. synonymous, yeah. And you know, those, you know Judah and Levi have to be there. Because ultimately you know that Christ is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Right. And the Levites are the ones who run the temple. So you know, out of maybe an easy way to remember it, out of all mm-hmm. the tribes, if there's only going to be two left... That's a good point. The bare minimum has got to be the line of Jesus and the folks that are running the temple, running mm-hmm. the worship. Then this, when we have this return to worship, you can't return to worship if you don't have the guys that are running the show. Yeah. You know, the guys that are the workers... Yeah, and that takes up a lot of space in chapter 2. Oh, yeah. You know, and there is... I read somebody said about chapter 2, you know, why all this boring list of people? This is God's way of honoring these folks who came back to do this. Mm -hmm. And who gets a large section of that? The Levites, the priests, the temple servants, etc. Yeah. Uh, He is sending the personnel even before the temple is built. And that's a great point. I never... I've thought about it, but not in exactly the way that you put it. That, you know, by deduction, we would know. If we didn't know the history, yeah. we'd be able to tell you what tribes are left from mm-hmm. the prophecy. Yeah. Judah and Levi. Has to be. Mm-hmm. 
That's good. Do we have anything else for digging deeper? I've got a couple more notes. Yeah. On stuff, if we we got time. Oh yeah. Um. Well, one thing that's interesting that we can talk about, we just mentioned it in the break, and we decide to edit this out if we want. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, in the mind of the Hebrews, in the Hebrew Bible, actually, Ezra and Nehemiah is really considered to be one work. It's just one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and so, the, the, the point I'm going to bring up is from this book, uh, the College Press NIV commentary about an introduction to the whole Old Testament. When it gets to Ezra... It mentions the fact that this list here in Ezra 2 is almost verbatim repeated in Nehemiah uh, chapter 7. And so the point they make is that it's likely that these two books are separate. Uh, they shouldn't be taken as just one book. They should be identified as two different ones because they both have uh, almost verbatim similar list. And the question there would be, well, if they're supposed to be the same book, why include the same list twice in two different places? Um, it's an interesting thing that we really just ran across a few minutes ago um, that shows, I guess, how Ezra and Nehemiah are related. There's a lot of continuity in between both of them, and they do both pick up right where Second Chronicles ends. You know, if we've noticed the end of Second Chronicles, verse 22 to the end, is almost identical to the start of Ezra. Um, And also, uh, Nehemiah begins uh, uh, after Ezra, so you have this continuation here. But it's interesting uh, that this idea from the Hebrews is that these two books are one book. You know, they're that closely related. They're they're the same book. There is no Ezra. Part one and part two. Yeah. Like first, second Chronicles, first, second Kings, that sort of thing. I thought about that some more, and I don't think it's necessary to assign the same author to both. Mm-hmm. In fact, that doesn't even work because I was I was thinking about that more after we were talking about this and you know, Ezra is written in third person. In fact, Ezra's writing about events that happened, you know, decades before he comes on the scene. But Nehemiah is written in first person. I did this. I went over here. Yeah. Artaxerxes said this to me and I was in, you know, I was a cupbearer to the king. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's obvious that you've got, you know, two different authors that just in terms of the style. The style is different. Yeah. Then, like you said, the list in chapter 2 of Ezra and chapter 7 of Nehemiah, if one author was doing that as a unified work, he wouldn't have put that list in twice. Yeah. But these two were written, you know, by guys who were friends, who were contemporaries. Mm-hmm. They worked together. You can read about their work together in, in uh, Nehemiah. Yeah, but um, you know, later on down the road, the Jews said, "Hey, this is part one and part two. You put these together, and they tell the same story." Mm-hmm. So they began to be known as Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, and, and I think I think that um, I also want to say in terms of authorship, it is my belief, and there's you know scholarship behind this, but no proof one way or the other mm-hmm. that Ezra probably wrote First and Second Chronicles. And maybe that's why you have that tie-in. The same at the end of Chronicles at the start of Ezra. Yeah, and it certainly... You know, Ezra was very much concerned about how God felt about this and that. Oh, yeah. The difference that I've always been taught between Kings and Chronicles was Kings just gives you the straight history. Chronicles gives you the divine commentary on the history. 
Hmm. And one example I can think of is, you know, the death of Uzzah, David's servant, who reached out and touched the ark. Mm-hmm. Kings, in, in the version of Kings, it says, Uzzah reached out, touched the ark, died. In Chronicles, it says, Uzzah reached out, touched the ark, and died because he didn't obey the command of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Now, that's paraphrase. Yeah, but it um, just adds that little bit about this is why he died. Because he disobeyed God. Not just the straight history, he died. Yes. It adds exactly. extra. Yeah. And that sounds like Ezra to me. You know? Yeah. Um, and just because we're in part two and we have no control over, you know, the stuff coming out of our mouths, I'll just keep on going. <laughs> I also think Psalm 119 is a product of Ezra. Hmm. Um, and this is not something I just came up with. I mean, you know, I've heard people say this and... You can read Old Testament introduction of Psalms. Uh, it's very well crafted. It's an acrostic, and it's a love letter oh, about yeah. the law. And yeah. you know Ezra. When we haven't even introduced the man Ezra yet, but when you get to him, he's a scribe whose life is the law of God. And when we get to applying him, we're going to have a lot of applications about how we ought to live according to the Word of God. And that's Psalm one nineteen. So. This man, you know, actually may have written a large portion of the Old Testament when he put together Psalm 119, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and Ezra. Uh, looks like he wrote a lot of it and was instrumental in the preservation of the Torah, uh, maybe the entire Hebrew Scripture canon. Mm-hmm. So some people believe that he put, he, he's the first one that had the canon intact. Huh. Because you think it, it all kind of might have been misplaced here and there mm-hmm. uh, in the captivity. Yeah. So yeah, we're there's... getting a little ahead of ourselves because that's kind of on down yeah, the road. Getting, start talking about restoration of the law. About stuff about Nehemiah right now. Yeah. There's lots of stuff about. Yeah. So anyway, we'll take a little break here with that and when we come back we're going to apply what we've been talking about. back from our second break and we're getting into the section where we apply what we've already read and what we've already kind of dug a little bit deeper into. And the first thing we want to look at in applying some stuff from this section is this idea of Cyrus knowing the Lord God. As we already said in Ezra chapter two and ver- or chapter one and verse two, Cyrus says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So he knows who God is. I mean, he knows him just on the you know, basis of this is his name. But we have the prophecy from Isaiah, and we talked about how does this match up with Isaiah saying, he will not know me. Um, and we mentioned the fact that just because Cyrus knows his name doesn't mean that he really knows God on a deeper... Cyrus didn't even understand the basic fact that God alone is God. You know, there are no other gods besides him. He is the one and only God and our application for that today is, we, you know, we can fall into the exact same rut of you know saying we know who God is and you know even calling God by name and even knowing the commands of God, even knowing what God wants us to do and even working on following 
those commands and uh, doing everything we can really to do that. And it reminds me of Matthew chapter 7. And you look in verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it's not just the person that knows the name of God. Because obviously here, Jesus is referring to people that know his name because they're calling on his name. They're saying, Lord, Lord. So this is not everybody who just calls upon the name, who just knows him at face value. These are the people that actually know it. You know, these are the ones that that long to be with him. They draw near to him, and God draws near to them, as James chapter 4 and verse 8 says. You know, this is just as Jesus said of this, the Pharisees, you know, they're with their lips they honor me. In Matthew chapter 15, uh, looking in verse 7, Jesus mentions Isaiah again. How about that? We're coming back to Isaiah. Jesus says, you <laughs> hypocrites. Well did, Isaiah pro- well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So really, I guess the application makes itself. You know, it's one thing to honor God with your lips. It's one thing to say, Cyrus, to say, The Lord has given me dominion over this kingdom. But it's something completely different to have your heart near God. Because you see, David... David's, you know, uh, the actions that he did didn't always line up with God's commands. Mm -hmm. Certainly, as we know from the whole episode with Bathsheba involving her husband and all of this and so on and so forth, uh, his actions didn't always match, but one thing that did match was his heart. You know, he's called a man after God's own heart. So the important thing here is is to be close to God in heart and the other things follow. That's really the idea. Well, I was just I was just reading an op-ed this morning that uh, made comment on something I had noticed some some years ago, which was a discontinuity between religiosity and you know social social issues like uh, marriage and um, you know fidelity in marriage mainly and uh, social justice and poverty and things. In other words, uh, what what this person had noticed is something I've noticed before. Is that in the Bible Belt, we have problems that shouldn't be associated with Christianity, like racism and uh, you know divorce, yeah, and uh, poverty, and you know where Christianity is actually flourishing, these things should go away. If it really is flourishing. And yet you'll see more Christians in this part of the country than in other parts of the country. And 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 then, uh, you know, I noticed this one time. I was looking up divorce rates because I was preparing a lesson on divorce or whatever. And mm-hmm. I found that, you know, one of the states with the highest divorce rates is the state of Alabama, where mm-hmm. we live. Right smack dab in the middle of the Bible Belt. Oh, yeah. One of the highest divorce rates. The lowest divorce rate at the time, now this may have changed, but the lowest divorce rate in the country is in Massachusetts, one of the most liberal uh, states, and in terms of the Churches of Christ, our lowest population is in the state of Massachusetts. So what's that all about? And I'll tell you what it's about. This was really brought out in the op-ed piece that I read, and I think it ties into what you're saying. What it is is nominal Christians versus true Christians. There's a lot of people in this part of the country who claim... I'm a Christian, and what they mean by that is, I get out of bed twice a month to go to church. 
or once a month, or once every three months, or Christmas and Easter only. Yeah. There's a lot of people in this part of the country who are afraid to admit that they're not really into God, that they don't really know God, so they Mm -hmm. profess Christ, but they're not really true Christians. Yeah. Where Christians are acting on their faith, those things are better. People stay more faithful to their marriages. They treat everyone fairly. They help the poor. But in places where people are just professing Christianity, where they really don't know God, you know, they just say they know God. Like Cyrus drops his name, you know, that stuff is actually worse than in places where people are non religious. Yeah. So it's uh you know, it reminds me of first Timothy five eight, where uh Paul said, If a man doesn't care for the members of his own household, he is worse than an infidel. It's it's like, you know, if you're a Christian in name only, you are worse than a than a person who doesn't believe in Christ at all. Yeah. So what's worse, being hot, cold, or lukewarm? Mm-hmm. Jesus said, It's the lukewarm that I'm gonna spit out of my mouth. Yeah. And it's pretty powerful idea there. I definitely think you hit the nail on the head with this idea of nominal Christians. Recently I was, uh, we put together this retreat for all the youth groups around, or you know, some of the youth groups around the Birmingham area, and we did a class on the, we did a class on unity in the body of Christ, and uh, we noticed there are 2.8 billion people on the planet who profess to be Christians. Um, there are 3 million, according to an article in the Huffington Post, 3 million of those live in Alabama. So just in Alabama, there's 3 million people that proclaim to be Christian. In Birmingham, there's 160,000 um, that claim to be Christians. Largest percentage of the world mm-hmm. number. Yeah. 3 million of 2.8 billion. No. Um, you know, Alabama is a small place. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait a second. Andrew, yeah, I don't think we got three million people in the state of Alabama. Did it? Did I hear you wrong? Yeah, we, well, it says about three million of those live in Alabama. Maybe I'm wrong. That's okay. from the Huffington Post. All right, I, I guess I don't I'm know. wrong. No, I don't I'm know sure I'm people wrong. We have I'm do, maybe we got five. Maybe I, I it said three hundred thousand. There's a typo. No, I think you're right. I'm it. wrong. Okay. <laughs> we don't know. You get the point, <laughs> folks. Uh, you know, the point is, there's a lot of people down in the South and in other parts of the world. Who say I'm a Christian? I'm a Christian. I'll you know, but it's more of a you know political stance. Yeah, it's to them. It's kind of like Auburn or Alabama. Mm-hmm. It's you know I'm on this team. No, yeah. I'm on that team. Well, I'll tell you, I'm not a Muslim or I'm not a Catholic or I'm yeah. not a Baptist. But that's as far as their faith goes. Yeah. And in that case, it really makes no difference. In fact, it has a negative effect on how they live their lives. Oh yeah. So know the Lord. You know, one of the earliest prophecies about the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 has, um, you know, what Jeremiah says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. He's not talking about nominal Christians there, but he's talking about people who really know the Lord. Um, One last thing on application. And that is, you know, somebody may be listening to this and thinking, maybe they're a little bummed out that we started with Ezra instead of the Gospel of John or Romans or something like that. Or maybe the book of Genesis, because 
you know, here we are, and we've already run into a genealogy. Yeah. And we've already got names like Jeshua and Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. How boring, how dull. What has this got to do with me? Well, it has everything in the world to do with us. Remember, the overall picture here is restoration, and this is just the first phase with Zerubbabel, the restoration of worship. Later, we'll see the restoration of the law. We'll see the restoration of uh, the city. And finally, the restoration of the honor of the Jewish people. And there's a reason why God restored his people back. The reason he did it is because of his purpose in bringing Jesus into the world to save the sins of mankind. God had this eternal purpose in his mind that he purposed in his son, Christ Jesus. And all of it is wrapped up in exactly what we're talking about. If Zerubbabel had not led these people back, then there would be no church, there would be no Christ, there would be no hope. No one to purchase our uh, redemption, no one to die for our sins. Everything hung on this return, Mm -hmm. and that's why we're studying it. You say, well, I've never heard of Zerubbabel before. Well, if you've never heard of Zerubbabel before, then you've never read carefully the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. Because Matthew and Luke both begin with a genealogy. Matthew's is in Matthew chapter 1, Luke's in Luke chapter 3. And as you're reading through, and this is probably, you know, if you be honest, this is the part of Matthew that you skipped. On January the yep. 1st when you said, I'm going to read through the New Testament in a year, or I'm going to read through it, you know, every month or whatever. Started on chapter 2. You, you, you started or with Matthew 18. chapter 1 verse 18. But, but if you were reading carefully, when you got down to verse 12, in the lineage of David, which was, you know, mark of the Messiah, you would have seen this. After the deportation to Babylon, which is what we've been talking about, mm-hmm. deportation to the captivity in Babylon, after that, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And if you continue reading on down, you'll get to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Another interesting thing is, Matthew traces the lineage through Joseph the carpenter, who was Jesus' father, culturally speaking, mm-hmm. not in actuality. There was no blood connection between the two because Jesus was born of a virgin. Mm-hmm. Luke, being a Gentile and being one who was more interested in the outcasts and the, the underdogs, he traces his genealogy of Christ through Mary, but both mm-hmm. of them have Zerubbabel the all-important ancestor of Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel, a son of David. David, the ancestor of the Messiah. What does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. If you're a Christian, Zerubbabel helped bring your Savior into the world. And I think that is a very important application for us to think about as we bring this uh, podcast to a close today. Thanks for joining us on our first official 66 podcast. I hope that you join us for every one. Next week we're going to get into more about Zerubbabel and you'll see him really come alive and you'll see how important he was in the construction of the new temple in Jerusalem. So keep following us, watch after us, give us some feedback. Uh, my email address is dkaiser at arcoc.com. You can get a hold of Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com. All the episodes of The 66 can be found at the 66, that's the number 66, dot net. Until next time, we'll see you later.